Welcome to the Tactical Tool Belt Climate Tech Podcast. On this show, we focus on how the real estate industry, the world's single largest emitter of greenhouse gases, can leverage climate tech to become part of the sustainability solution. I'm your host, Greg Smithies. I'm a partner on the climate tech team at Fifth Wall, the largest and most active venture investor in technology for the real estate industry. In this podcast, we'll be joined by people on the front lines, the people inventing, investing in, and deploying the climate tech we'll need to make our homes, offices, and communities more efficient, more sustainable, and ever closer to carbon zero. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tactical Tool Belt Climate Tech, where uh, every week we talk to people on the front lines building the technology to decarbonize uh, the built environment. And uh, today we've got the great opportunity to speak to not one but two guests, Dana Gibber and Phil Vogel, who are the uh, CEO and co-founder and the chief blockchain officer of uh, Flow Carbon. So thanks to both of you for spending the time here today. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. So you actually have, uh, I don't know if this is an ignominious sort of opportunity, but you are the first blockchain company that we've had on here. So I, I think we're probably also going to spend some time on what the hell is blockchain and, and what is this, this new thing too. But maybe before we hop into what it is exactly that Flow does, I would love to hear a little bit about how each of you got to where you are today. I'm always fascinated by kind of the founder and entrepreneurial journey story. So, so Dana, maybe let's start out with you. How did you get here? Absolutely. Uh, happy to tell you how, how I ended up here. So I am a a, actually a lawyer by training, but quickly made the, the wise decision to flee the law and started a software company. It was a marketing SaaS platform that enabled AI-powered chatbot technology for enterprise retail clients. It, in other words, it enabled retailers to stand up chatbot technology to interact with their customers for sales purposes, to make more sales as, as uh, sort of opposed to customer service returning things. I worked on that company for a number of years and together with my co-founder, we sold it to a private equity fund at the beginning of 2020. And around the time of this acquisition, we started getting involved in what's called environmental philanthropy, which is philanthropy that's geared towards effectuating large-scale conservation, reforestation, afforestation, incredible projects done in nature and fueled by philanthropy dollars. And so obviously this was this was a passion of ours. And as we sort of got more involved, we realized that the reliance on philanthropic capital to do these projects was a big problem. And it was the reason that you have uh, about 260 gigatons of irrecoverable carbon in our natural ecosystems that are urgently at, at risk of release into the atmosphere. Meaning there's not enough philanthropy capital to effectuate the projects that we want to see. It's why something like 73% of our rainforests remain unprotected. And so we were a bit disheartened and started investigating what alternative sources of financing these wonderful projects in nature might be, which led us to do a deep dive into the carbon offset 
that market together with some others who eventually ended up being our, our, our co-founders here, who were the drivers behind the conservation efforts. And so we came to the carbon offset market and realized that this was an incredible market predicated on an incredible asset called a carbon offset, the primary purpose of which was to serve as a vehicle, bringing funding and financing into these projects on the ground in nature. So this was this was a really important, incredibly, incredibly effective vehicle for effectuating the change we wanted to see, but had a lot of underlying problems in the market, which we'll get into. And so we decided to start a company in the space that was tackling some of the deep problems we saw in the carbon offset market. And we quickly realized that this was going to be a Web3 company, that all of the problems, again, which we can get into later, all of the problems in the carbon offset market, a lot of the the sort of, I would say, market mechanisms that were contributing to this not reaching its potential at all would be solved by tokenizing this asset. And so we immediately brought in the smartest person we knew on crypto and blockchain, and that's Phil. We've known him for a long time. He has a deep background in blockchain and crypto. And when we knew that tokenization was going to be a key to solving the problems we saw, he was absolutely the first person we turned to. Thanks, Dana. And I think, uh, Phil, that's that's a great uh, great segue into into a little bit of your background. But maybe before we, we jump in there, Dana, I think what is really interesting about your background here is you are an example of what I think is an accelerating trend where you've got people who maybe started their company, you know, number one, or started out their careers on the sort of advertising and SaaS software side of the world and are now turning their background and capabilities onto more sort of mission-driven companies. I've said this somewhat flippantly in the past that... Uh, you know, it's quite a kind of a travesty that for the last 20 years, our best and brightest people in the world have uh, been pointing their brains at how do we optimize click-through ads, you know, and, th- and things like that. And it's, it's very heartening always to, to hear when people are shifting their focus onto these more mission-driven uh, companies. So, hey, just thank you. But uh, Phil, how about you? How did you get here? Yeah, so I was a fintech entrepreneur and worked in um, the investment space for a while and then discovered Bitcoin in around 2012 and started following the space pretty actively. And by 2016, was very deep down the rabbit hole. Um, and so I started spending more and more time on it and sort of got involved in the impact blockchain space fairly early on in the 2017, 2018 timeframe when, you know, proof of stake consensus mechanisms started coming out and people were looking at how can they make a switch to that. And I started a company um, that was focused on masternode and proof of stake coins and bringing those more to the forefront and speeding up their adoption in 2018, got involved in a project called Bitcoin Green, which was really starting trying to be the first impact-oriented blockchain. And then around the 2020 timeframe, I was working on a project with Bitcoin Green, trying to figure out if we could create a green stablecoin using assets on-chain that were ready on-chain, and quickly did a quick survey and deep dive and found out that there weren't that many assets on-chain to begin with that could be qualified as green. And looking at the carbon credit space, which was sort of nascent at the time on-chain, figured that there was a lot that can be done. I really went down the rabbit hole for quite a while. And then roughly a year ago, I found out that two of my friends were actually building a company in the carbon space. And they actually called me and said, hey, we know you know a lot about blockchain, but know anyone who knows anything about carbon on chain. And so that's sort of how we got here. Yeah, that, that's incredible. And, and also, frankly, similar background, this this pivot from fintech into into you know blockchain and then into sort of clean and, and carbon stuff. Fa- fascinating. So um, Dana, I think you started, started talking about this a little bit. But um, before we talk about, you know, what it is that flow actually does and and the fact that this is web3 
three and you know it's blockchainy and you know we lose everybody in uh, in crypto jargon what was the actual problem that you came to realize needed to be solving so much that you kind of said hey screw this philanthropy thing i'm gonna go and start a company yes absolutely so at the at the most macro level the problem is called climate change <laughs> um <laughs> when we get more specific um here's the problem so we i think as a global society we all recognize that climate change is upon us and is a problem and thankfully there's hundreds of billions of dollars at this point and lots of brain power that is being spent focused on, on decarbonization efforts right strategy infrastructure technology etc there, there's a lot happening and What's fascinating to me is the fact that with all that happening, what we have not managed to do is to preserve our natural carbon sinks. Nature is, I believe, the most scalable, immediate, and cost-effective part of our solution set to climate change. And yet we've not managed to figure out an effective way of preserving our natural carbon sinks in a financially viable and scalable way. And so the problem really is that we have natural carbon sinks that are essential to um, the overall solution set to climate change. And we're clear cutting them. The, the alarming stat that kind of illustrates this is every six seconds, one soccer field, for us, it's a soccer field. For you, Greg, it's a football field. <laughs> one soccer <laughs> yeah. field or football field worth of rainforest is lost, which means every minute there's 30 of those lost, which is the equivalent of adding 7 million cars on the road every day. And so we are destroying our natural carbon sinks and that's uh, something that needs to be addressed. And if it is addressed, it can contribute there. The estimates are it can contribute up to 30% of the overall solution to climate change. And so what this means is making it financially viable to do these projects in nature. So whereas there's a lot of economic incentive to destroy our natural assets, especially in the developing world, we need to make it economically viable and we need to create financial incentives for keeping them standing and preserved. And that's what the carbon offset market was designed to do. A carbon offset, what, what is a carbon offset? It's essentially this. If somebody, a, a project developer or an, a nonprofit, whoever does a project, it could be in nature, there are non-nature-based projects also, but it, they do a project that has a positive carbon impact, meaning they do conservation that keeps trees that are sequestering metric tons of carbon, they, they do a conservation project that keeps those trees standing, then they can basically get that project audited. There's the whole cottage industry of third-party auditors. They're called carbon developers. They, they are incredibly thorough and quantitative with their methodologies. They come in, they, they measure the carbon impact of the project, and they submit it to their globally recognized nonprofits who issue what's called carbon credits. And the carbon developer on behalf of the project with other layers of verification will together bring this evidence to the certification body, they will approve the project and issue this project developer carbon credits, carbon offset credits, and those can then be sold to those who want to pay for offsets. The good news is that the demand side of the market for offsets has been exploding recently on the corporate side. And so all that needs to be fixed is making it as easy and streamlined and, and efficient as possible for these projects to get certified, and then making it as easy and streamlined as possible for them to sell these units to the end buyer. And if those two things can be solved, then you have a robust, functioning, growing carbon offset market that is helping to directly fund these projects on the ground. 
the problem, of course, is that these, the market doesn't work that way. It's highly inefficient, non-transparent. If we start the story at the juncture whereby a project developer has these credits, they, they did the project, they got it certified. So it's a verified project. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. We know down to the metric ton of carbon exactly what the, the positive carbon impact of the project is. Now they need to sell this unit. If we pick up the story there, the problem is this. These units are sold primarily over the counter through brokers and marketing agents, et cetera, all of whom are wonderful, you know, well-intentioned people, but the market still is nonetheless predominantly about 92% over the counter. So it's very slow. It could take, we, we as Flow Carbon, we buy offsets all the time in the market. It could take something like four to six weeks to effectuate a transaction. You are pinging brokers every morning. They're emailing you rate sheets. There's very little liquidity. So you're piecing together a group of offsets from all kinds of different projects. You have to look up what it is that they're selling you. So they'll say, we have 20,000 credits available from project one, two, three, four, five issued in year 2015. So you have to do a lot of project level research, piece together a buy that's in the amount that you need. You then have to onboard, do a lot of diligence and onboarding um, and KYC with the brokerage that is the source of your credits. You then have to do an individual purchase agreement for every single buy. Um, you're often reconciling uh, legal across different jurisdictions. We're in the US, for example. Lots of brokers or projects are overseas. So lots of legal resources expended, counterparty risk, somebody sending money, somebody sending credits. And then finally, you have a sale. This means that there's a lot of demand side, pent up demand side value that isn't able to transact because it's so difficult and opaque and resource intensive and requires a lot of expertise. So there's a lot of demand side value that's locked out of the market. It's incredibly slow, it's non-transparent, there's no price transparency. There's very few effective benchmark prices that one can even use. And so the result is a very slow, inefficient, non-transparent overall voluntary market relative to what it could be. I, I think that the fact that you were able to talk about this problem, therefore six minutes straight, tells us something very, <laughs> very oh, visceral about how complicated this actually is. Uh, you know, I think the, w the way I think about this is this particular market is almost like uh, the equities market, not in the 1990s, but the 1890s, right? This is people having zero information about, about what it is that they're trying to buy and having to do massive due diligence before they buy anything. And so there's obviously huge and efficiencies in it. And so what you end up with is a piece of land in the Amazon is more valuable right now to burn down all of those trees and put some cows on it for two or three years until that, you know, soil is exhausted. And then you put soybeans on it for, you know, two or three years. It is more valuable that way, even though there is, you know, Microsoft and tens or hundreds of other Fortune 500 companies who would very happily pay hundreds of dollars to buy carbon offsets from that land in the Amazon just being wild. The demand and the supply just can't meet here because the the overall market is completely inefficient, right? A hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. So okay. I think we, we've got a good feel here for the for the what the problem actually is. But at the end of the day, kind of, you know, 
how big is the opportunity if you actually solve this, right? I think this is, these are voluntary carbon credits. How many people actually want to buy them if we were able to solve them? Like how big is this actual market? So it's conservatively a $10 billion market this year, up from a $300 billion market in 2018. So quite a lot of rapid growth. And it's quickly headed to becoming a $100 billion market um, by 2030. Again, conservative estimates. Typically, only the corporate demand is calculated in these demand scenarios. But we at Flow are very aware that there is retail demand, there's institutional investor demand, there's a lot of on-chain demand among crypto protocols, which Phil can speak to if that's of interest. So these are the conservative demand scenarios. Yeah. So so clearly, if, if we just ignore the, hey, this is good for the planet point of view, and you just put on your 100% capitalist hat, making this market more efficient could unlock hundreds of billions of dollars of value here, you know, directly for yourself, for the people buying these things, and also even for people who want to speculate on this stuff, right? Right now, carbon credits, you know, average weighted prices, you know, somewhere around about, you probably know this better, you know, five or six bucks. There's a lot of crap in there, but, you know, let's call it five or six bucks on average. I think the, the estimates are that over the next decade, that's probably going to hit 200 conservatively, right? So even just having an efficient market where people can start speculating on these things is probably good from from an economic point of view. So Phil, let's maybe hop over into, okay, so you've got this problem out there. Um, How do you solve this? And why is it that blockchain is the right way to do it? Yeah. So fundamentally, what a carbon credit actually is, is just a database entry. There is no actual physical object that you're actually trying to move around the world or take possession of. All it is, is a database database entry. And what a blockchain fundamentally is, is a distributed database where the ownership of assets in the database or or data points in the database can be held by anyone being represented by tokens. So while I'm a big blockchain guy and believe that everything should be on blockchain, carbon credits are actually a perfect use case for blockchain because they solve so many of the fundamental problems around trading, around access of who can actually buy and own them, who can custody them, where they can be custodied, ensuring that they are exactly what they say they are, and also solving one of the key use cases that blockchain was designed to solve for, which is the double spend problem. What oftentimes can happen in the carbon credit, uh, the voluntary carbon market is because you don't actually ever take possession of the carbon credit. So you are a corporate who wants to offset. You go out and you contact a broker who says, great, I have an offset to sell you. They're not actually selling you the carbon credit before it's offset. They're actually selling you in the moment. They're saying, okay, great. I have carbon credits, which I'm going to buy on your behalf, hold them in my registry account. And then I'm going to do the retirement that basically gives gives you the right to claim the offset, right? So you never actually see this. And so in theory, a broker who is a a bad actor potentially can go and claim to sell this to two people at the same time and say, look, you can see I retired these credits for you. And by the way, this guy over here, I'm going to sell you the same paper certificate that says these credits were retired. That's the double spend problem. Blockchains were specifically designed as a first principle to not allow for the double spend problem, right? Because you can take physical custody of the, let's call it the tokenized representation of the carbon credit, you know that you have it and you're the only person who has it and you're the only person who, when it's retired, can claim the offset from it. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so uh, to summarize here, it's that ultimately you need something that is very easy to trade, like an electronic security that is very easy to trade globally, right? So we get out of that world of, you know, people picking up the phone and brokers sending around, uh, you know, price lists in Excel, which is what the over-the-counter market is right now. You need a globally fungible, tradable thing. The the blockchain is, is essentially kind of perfect for that. 
But then at the same time, you get some of these great side effects, which is the blockchain is incredibly good at making sure that people can't, two people can't spend the same coin, right? And, and retire the same, the same item. Yeah. So fundamentally, the other big thing that happens when you use blockchains is trading basically can happen 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the most liquid markets available because they're just there, right? And you get all of the benefits that have sort of been developed over the last couple of years in the decentralized finance space, which also don't exist for carbon credits today. So for example, if you're someone who currently today owns carbon credits, you can't borrow against that asset. It's impossible. Whereas in DeFi as a tokenized solution, that basically comes for free. You can go to a permissionless protocol that allows for borrowing and lending and actually get collateral against your carbon credits to buy more carbon credits if you wanted to, or to basically allow for you to fi help finance additional projects as time goes on. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's do a little bit of, uh, of Financial Markets 101 here, because I think what, what you're scratching the surface on here is very interesting. If I'm a project developer and I want to go out and buy a thousand acres of the Amazon rainforest in order to do this, I probably need to go to a bank and borrow some money to do it. The bank would like to lend me that money, but they don't know what price I can sell my carbon offsets from because there's no such thing as a spot price in this market because it's an inefficient over-the-counter market. If you don't have a spot price, you can't have what's known as a futures price because your futures price has to be built off of a spot price, right? And something like a yield curve. If I don't have a future price, that means the bank has nothing to lend me money on. Therefore, I can't get that debt to go and buy the land. Therefore, I can't do a project, right? So I think at a more fundamental level, by creating a liquid market here, you are ultimately going to unlock hundreds of billions of dollars of, of capital, therefore, to actually go into the development of these projects that just can't flow right now, correct? That's exactly. exactly right. So, um, okay, I have two, uh, maybe two uh, devil's advocate questions, one for Dana and then one for Phil. Let's start out with Dana's one. I think if you talk to five different people, you'll probably get five different answers on whether or not carbon offsets are actually good. The number one pushback on offsets is, hey, but offsets are basically like a... Uh, an indulgence, right? Think of think of the Catholic Church selling indul indulgences back in the 17th century, right? It is a right for a company to keep doing bad. So is, is that correct? And uh, why is it that we ultimately still need carbon offsets? Um, or are they just indulgences? Of course, that's not correct. So here's why. I think maybe it's instructive or illuminating to use an industry that you know something about, which is real estate. So you are never going to have buildings that use zero energy ever, right? Buildings always need energy, as do most industries. So as we think about decarbonization as a whole, of course, every industry, real estate, manufacturing, industrial, whatever, everybody is working on internal reduction measures. What can we do to reduce as much as we can and to add as much efficiency as we can into our, our energy and our emissions? But there is always going to be a delta. There is zero industry on earth and in particular real estate, that is going to be able to exist without expending any energy. So with that, it's super important to have offsets and they play a really important role in the story. Offsets just mean we don't want to have a net negative impact on the environment. So we are going to do whatever we can to reduce and be climate responsible. But whatever the delta is, we then pay for that amount of abatement exactly, one-to-one -one ratio, somewhere else. And I think that is a very credible claim and it's, it's essential. Without that, it is mathematically impossible and scientifically impossible for us to achieve the sort of global 1.5 degree pathway that we all understand is needed to prevent catastrophic climate change. So we're, we're a big believer in the important role that offsets play. I'll also add that offsets are the primary mechanism 
for preserving our natural carbon sinks, which can provide up to 30% of the solution to climate change. And so without offset revenue, we will continue to see the absolutely astounding destruction of our natural resources. Yeah, you're effectively allowing a value to be put on to keeping things natural as opposed to the only value being exploiting it and, you know, clear cutting forests, right? Yep. Okay, Phil. The, the devil's advocate question here, I'm sure you're expecting is, you know, I, I think we hear a lot just how terrible for the environment Bitcoin is because of the amount of energy that goes into uh, the mining of these assets in the data centers. So um, how is how is flow working around this? Yeah, so Bitcoin definitely has a large environmental footprint. But the first of all, we're going to be using proof of stake blockchains, which is a different consensus mechanism, just to give a very quick, you know, tr- kind of trying to be as concise as possible, the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. Proof of work basically works by the network are secured by machines that are running very fast to solve very complicated math questions in order to win a reward. And so there are lots and lots of machines that go up because the rewards are very valuable and they use a lot of energy to sort of secure the network that way. Proof of stake, on the other hand, essentially allows you to use standard sort of server and computer equipment. And by the network is ends up being secured by you putting up collateral to prove that your transactions, that you're not a bad actor, that you're going to approve transactions in the correct way. So that just ends up using a tremendously lower amount of energy compared to a proof of work mechanism, just to give you an example of what that looks like. If the energy consumption of the Bitcoin network was the tallest building in the world, the energy consumption by the Ethereum proof of work network is essentially the leaning tower of Pisa and a proof of stake network would be a screw. So the energy consumption by proof of stake networks is tiny. And it's really important to, to like think about that the entire industry is largely moving away from proof of work and towards proof of stake. One of the biggest things that anticipations in uh, the blockchain space ha- is the what's called the merge, which is when Ethereum is going to move completely off of proof of work and onto a proof of stake network. And so for the second largest blockchain in the world to be moving towards proof of stake is a very big indication of how seriously the industry takes the energy consumption that is surrounding this and making sure that we're not part of the problem, but actually a solution to the problem. Yeah, a- absolutely. Okay, well, just to sum up the entire discussion here, I think the ultimate goal is we have... Over the next uh, 10, 20, 30 years, we are going to have hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of demand for carbon offsets. We absolutely need it. At the same time, we have acres upon acres of land out there that needs to be uh, reforested in order to provide those carbon offsets. What Flow is coming in and doing is creating the efficient market so we can take this whole industry from you know emails and phone calls to a highly liquid tradable market that therefore allows this capital to flow and allows this to happen. This is a very complicated thing to do. You're essentially building the entire, like what we've got in the New York Stock Exchange and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and all of those things and the complications of those of those markets. That's what you're essentially trying to build here. So no small feats. I'm very glad that we've got two obviously incredibly intelligent people going after this and uh, a whole team behind you doing doing the same thing. So where can people go to find out more about Flow? Uh, Dana. Flowcarbon.com. Fantastic. Okay. And I think you you recently had some very big announcements. So what are some of those things that you maybe want to mention to the audience here today? Uh, Yeah. So we definitely have some huge announcements coming up, including the fact that Fifth Wall just participated in our pre-sale. So we are actually currently engaged in a token pre-sale for carbon back tokens. So this is our uh, GNT product, which is going to be our flagship 
token, which is actually a bundle token that bundles together individual tokenized carbon credits and is a nature-based token that anyone can come and purchase from our website and participate in our pre-sale today um, if they want to. That's fantastic. So I think typically the people that we talk to are selling things that, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, you need to be in a big enterprise to buy. But it sounds like people should actually be able to go and if they want to sort of put their money where their mouth is, go and buy some uh, buy some carbon offset tokens, uh, do it just for ethical reasons, do it to speculate on them. I personally think that, you know, uh, this is not SEC investment advice, but I think the prices in this market are going to go through the roof uh, over the next uh, couple of decades. So it's an exciting time to be looking at this entire space. So Dan and Phil, thanks so much for taking the time. This was fantastic. And uh, I look forward to hearing more about Flow. Thank you, Greg. Thanks so much, Greg. Thanks for listening to Fifth Wall's Tactical Tool Belt Climate Tech Podcast. For more on Fifth Wall and our efforts in climate tech, visit our website at fifthwall.com.